Hey everyone, this is Robert Steer. I'm a host and producer here at TUTV Media Labs, and I'm here with Justin Rollins, who's an executive producer at TUTV. Um, Justin, do you want to explain a little bit what TUTV is? Hey Robert, uh, sure. Uh, so TUTV is a student-run multimedia production lab at the University of Tulsa. Uh, we've been part of the TU community for about four decades now, and for most of that time we were a TV-only outfit. Uh, now, we still produce a weekly show, but we are increasingly expanding to other facets of media production. And we work with students to help them articulate their passion and creativity through media. And this includes podcasting. It does. And this is our first foray into that world. It is. And, Robert, it's your show, so no pressure there. Um, <laughs> do you, uh, you want to say a few words about your, uh, your show, like what you think you'll be doing, what you're interested in, what you'd like to cover, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I'm really excited to do podcasting. It's like been one of my uh, aspirations for a long time, um, but I'm really passionate about politics. I'm a political science student here at the University of Tulsa. Right now, I'm in the middle of my sophomore year. I've studied uh, foreign politics and domestic politics um, and a lot of political culture things, and I'm really interested in hearing... Uh, about policy issues and debating certain policy procedures and stuff like that. Um, American politics is really fascinating to me. Um, and so I kind of want a podcast based around uh, the political structure in America. So that's kind of what I've created here. <laughs> well, that sounds great. Uh, I can't wait to listen to it. Well, don't go anywhere because I'm actually drafting you to be a part of it. So, <laughs> okay. Uh, we hope you all enjoy. Uh, now on with the show. Hi everyone, this is Meet in the Middle. I'm your host, Robert. You know, I've been thinking a lot about a really terrifying scenario. This is arguably the greatest crisis in international relations in recent years. It's a situation that seems to be getting worse rather than better. It continually threatens to spill out into a war that could potentially kill millions. And yet, in spite of this, it's a story that has largely faded into the background. It's North Korea. On October 11th, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, otherwise known as North Korea, released a statement proclaiming that U.S. President Donald Trump has, quote, lit the wick of war. This is just the most recent shot in an ongoing war of words between North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un and President Trump. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Thank you. Tensions between the two heads of state have risen sharply ever since early September, when North Korea began touting its ability to launch nuclear strikes on the U.S. and its allies. There's also a far longer and really more complicated historical relationship at work here, too. The current state of affairs in the North Korean peninsula is the result of a long and complex history. I'll give you an abbreviated version here that takes us back roughly 70 years. By the time of Japan's 1945 defeat at the hands of the Allied forces, it had occupied and colonized both present-day North and South Korea for 35 years. With its loss, Japan was forced to relinquish that peninsula. The Soviets occupied the northern part bordering China, while the U.S. occupied the southern half. 
Although the division was initially planned to be temporary, the Soviet installation in support of communist leaders in the north and the American installation of U.S. sympathetic leaders in the south all but assured that that initial goal of reunification would be incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. United Nations troops push on in the cautious advance against the communists. An advance whose purpose, General Ridgway states, is not to seize ground, but to wipe out the enemy. The Chinese Red Army, fighting desperately in small isolated stands, prefers to give ground on wider fronts rather than join battle. And it's up to the infantry to clear out the pockets of die-hard communists. The South announces complete separation from the North, prompting the North Koreans to invade in 1950. A United Nations coalition led by the South Korean and American forces fought the North and its communist backers for the next three years. In 1953, the two halves of Korea were able to negotiate an armistice, re-establishing the 38th parallel border that formally separated them before the conflict. It came on July 27, 1953. While the communists signed at Panmunjom, General Clark, in ceremonies at the UN base camp in Munsan, signed six copies of the document which would end the bloodshed. There was excitement, but little rejoicing. We have stopped the shooting. That means much to the fighting men and their families. And it will allow some of the grievous wounds of Korea to heal. Therefore, I am thankful. The task now is to put the ceasefire agreement into full effect and get down to working out an enduring settlement of the Korean problem. What is really important to remember here is that the war has yet to technically end. Because we have an armistice and not a formal declaration of peace, the US and South Korea are still officially at war with North Korea. The 38th parallel that marks the border between the North and South halves became and remains a demilitarized zone. Somewhat ironically, the DMZ, or Demilitarized Zone, has become arguably the most militarized area in the world. It is very hard for citizens of either country to move through this border, even though it divides countless families. The two Koreas enjoyed relative, if occasionally volatile, peace for several decades. Kim Il-sung, North Korea's founding dictator, reigned absolutely until his death in 1994. While he signed a nuclear non-proliferation treaty in 1985, Kim Il-sung threatened to quit it in 1993 when he was accused of violating its terms. His sonic successor, Kim Jong-il, frequently used the threat of nuclear development as a bargaining chip. He agreed in 1994 to freeze the nuclear program in exchange for several nuclear reactors. In 2002, he admitted to having uranium-based nuclear weapons program. Stiff sanctions from the U.S. and neighboring Asian allies followed, and in 2003, North Korea pulled out from the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty altogether. Three years later, North Korea conducted its first successful nuclear tests. Since the development of its first nuclear weapon, North Korea has ratcheted up its nuclear threats to assert its sovereignty, defy the U.S. and U.N., and bargain for sanctions relief. The Korean Central Television said Kim died while riding on a train on his way to an inspection tour. He had been undergoing treatment for problems with his heart and brain for a long time. He was also suffering from fatigue. The television said Kim's body is at a palace in Pyongyang. The body of his father, Kim Il-sun, is also there. A period of mourning has been declared through Tuesday next week, and the funeral will be held uh, the following day in Pyongyang. North Korean announced the committee to arrange Kim's funeral. The first person it mentioned was Kim's third son, Kim Jong-un.
State-run media said the country has what it called the great successor and the leader of the party, military, and people, Kim Jong-un, at the forefront. And this is the first time state-run media has called Kim Jong-un the successor. Kim Jong-il's death in 2011 left his son and successor, Kim Jong-un, in charge as North Korea's latest supreme leader. Though pundits had initially been hopeful that the new leader's youth and Western education might represent a change of pace for the regime, Un has continued his father's and grandfather's pattern of strict authoritarian rule and isolationism. One of his most defining and unsettling characteristics as a leader has been his unpredictability. He's been in power for more than half a decade, but it's still unclear what his ultimate goal is. Experts call this type of leader an irrational actor. There is no way to play conventional politics with such a figure because their goals are either non-existent or so unpredictable that speculation is just unproductive. Wow, Robert, this is really fascinating and truly unsettling. Hey, everyone, this is executive producer Justin Rollins again. Hey, guys. Uh, Robert, you weren't lying when you said you were going to recruit me for this. Um, <laughs> this, is, uh, this situation is so fascinating and so unnerving. I mean, it's, it's remarkable how little this is on our radar at the moment. Um, this is also generating a lot of questions for me, like what are the U.S.'s policy goals then when it comes to North Korea? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, first and foremost, the U.S. wants North Korea's nuclear program disarmed. Um, the U.S. wants North Korea to give up on its nukes, to demilitarize, and to become a peaceful nation. Um, this is practically unachievable, though. Um, at the moment, given that North Korea's nuclear program is its sole source of real leverage, um, the South Korean capital Seoul is within striking distance of North Korean weapons, and North Korea is unable to threaten nuclear retaliation against all of its neighbors should it feel threatened. So disarmament isn't likely anytime soon. Yeah, you're, you're right. That doesn't seem very likely. The other option is containment and restraint, though. What would that involve? Uh, the U.S. can minimize the threat of North Korea using trade sanctions like the ones put in place on September 11th, 2017. Uh, these new restrictions substantially curb the amount of exports that a country is still allowed to sell to North Korea. Limiting raw resources, capital, and technology to North Korea is currently viewed by experts as the most effective way to change the government's behavior. There's just one problem. Uh, what's that? <laughs> Well, as North Korea becomes more and more starved for its resources, it is entirely possible that Kim Jong-un's options may dwindle and he may resort to some more desperate measures to remain in power. He can either make a concession for relief or he can escalate to try to get the UN to lift the sanctions. Now that North Korea claims to have some of, form of long-range missile technology, the country constitutes an even bigger nuclear threat to the US and to the world. Whether or not their technology is viable remains a little bit unclear. Um, Kim Jong-un has said his country has the ability to launch a missile capable of reaching the coast of Alaska, but their claims have not been substantiated. Um, regardless, evidence does suggest that North Korea has the means to at least strike all of its eastern, all of Eastern Asia. Um, the country may have the ability to hit the continental United States as well. For his part, Kim Jong-un has backed himself into a position where he can't afford to concede power. If he gives up his nuclear weapons, he th his threats no longer carry the weight that they once had. It is unclear what exact steps the United States would take should this happen, but it would be quite possibly end with the complete dismantling of North Korea's authoritarian government. This would be an ideal solution for the United States, for the people of North Korea, and for the international community. Okay, but what are the odds of that happening? <laughs> zero or, or close to it. Um, it is looking more and more likely that North Korea will continue to escalate rather than defuse the situation. And President Trump has shown a tendency to escalate in 
kind, though his tweets are impromptu comments like the fire and fury bit we heard earlier. This is worrying because military options for the U.S. have long been constrained when it comes to the extremely isolated nation of North Korea. The U.S. lacks crucial information about the locations of North Korean launch sites, the proximity of regional population centers to North Korean missiles, also um, all but ensures that the country will be able to launch devastating conventional attacks against its neighbors. It also is unclear whether or not the U.S. would be able to thwart North Korea's launch of a nuclear bomb. Even one nuclear strike uh, would likely catapult the world into a global disaster scenario. Even if we were able to accomplish a preemptive strike, the loss of life alone could still be catastrophic, especially in, if Seoul were caught up in the crossfire. Judy Woodruff on the PBS NewsHour put it best when she said, There are no easy answers and few good options when it comes to dealing now with North Korea. So that's very uh, sobering, but it seems very accurate, uh, what Woodruff is saying. So where, I mean, where do we go from here, Robert? That's the answer that seems to continually elude everyone. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty when it comes to North Korea, and it is unclear how this high-stakes situation will evolve further. One possibility for a more peaceful resolution would see China and Russia completely cut off all trade with North Korea. Given each country's reluctance to do that, this seems, uh, again, very unlikely. Russia enjoys having an unstable and antagonistic nuclear power that hates the United States and its allies. Um, Russia also enjoys the cheap labor resources that North Korea exports. Russia brings in thousands of underpaid workers from North Korea in order to do construction jobs or other labor-intensive tasks for basically no money. Uh, Russia will pay North Korean government up front instead of paying the individual workers which creates an underground economy that's not quite slavery, but isn't too far off when it comes down to it. Uh, they will comply with sanctions, but there are frequent suspicions that Russians have been smuggling materials into North Korea as well. China is another problem. Uh, China is reluctant to go all in against North Korea, but for a slightly different reason. China shares its southern border with North Korea. If the regime were to collapse, China would be responsible for all the refugees and cleanup of North Korea. China is also very weary of American influence in the Pacific as is. Uh, demilitarized North Korea would shift the power balance away from China. Well, China isn't necessarily in control of the power balance now, but they still resent U.S. allies and our power in the uh, Pacific theater, as it were. Um, South Korea would, of course, help as well with the cleanup and the refugees, but China would be uh, a larger burden bearer since it shares a larger border and has more room to accommodate. Uh, China doesn't want to spend the money or the resources to do that. It also does not want to risk a Korean peninsula reunified on South Korea's and the U.S.'s terms. So for now, we're playing a very high-stakes game of poker, and we don't really know who is going to fold, bet, or just flip the whole table over. The one thing that won't help the situation is an unsteady leader at the head of the United States foreign policy. However, that is an entire podcast episode unto itself. <laughs> that it is. Thank you very much for listening to our very first episode of Meet in the Middle, TUTV's very first podcast. If you have suggestions for other podcasts you'd like to listen to or any ideas for other content, feel free to drop a comment at our Facebook page or our YouTube page. You can also see the content of other TUTV students there. Uh, it'd be a great way to support us and to support our wonderful group of talented students. Thank you for listening. I'm Robert Steer. I'll see you next time. <laughs>